please turn with me this morning to the book of 1 Peter. We're getting very close to the end of this epistle. I think I've been preaching on it a couple of years now. Some breaks there, and of course I'm away occasionally, but um, we're getting very close, and this morning I want to preach on just one verse. You should always be wary when the preacher says there's only one verse we have to cover, because that must mean there's something very pregnant about this. And um, so don't get the idea this is necessarily a short message. There's going to be quite a bit we want to cover. And the one verse we're going to be looking at this morning is the 11th verse of 1 Peter. Context, and so I'll begin our reading together at verse 6. 1 Peter 5, 6. Hear this now as it is to you, the very word of God. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Casting all your anxiety upon him, because he cares for you. Be sober, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour, whom withstand steadfast in your faith, knowing that the same sufferings are accomplished in your brethren who are in the world. And the God of all grace, who called you unto his eternal glory in Christ, after that you have suffered a little while, shall himself perfect, establish, strengthen you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And thus far, the reading of God's word. I want you to notice at the very end of our reading here in verse 11 how Peter says, Amen. And I want to say that to you, uh, this congregation in particular, because you're acting like a bunch of Presbyterians when it comes to saying the Amen. Saying the Amen isn't something only charismatics do. Well, of course, we're all charismatic, aren't we? Because we're all gifted by the Spirit, and we're supposed to live in the Spirit and the joy of the Spirit. And uh, it seems like no matter how many times I teach you this, the Amen is a heartfelt assent that is publicly given. And so when we in the worship service come to at the end of a, a song, especially one that ascribes praise to God, and there's an amen there, we should sing the amen. And when we're led in prayer uh, by the elder or the pastor, and he gets to the end of that felt uh, uh, public recognition and endorsement, say amen. And so I've been thinking over the last few times that I've worshiped with you that Maybe we don't have a lot of heartfelt involvement in our worship, because I don't hear you say the amen. Peter gives us the example here. He comes right after he gives this doxology to God, whose dominion is without end. He says amen. Sometimes there are things that just overwhelm us in God's word, and we can't help but respond. And the appropriate response is, that's right. Now, amen may not be you know, what's best for us at the end of the 20th century, because amen is, of course, a transliteration of a Greek word, amen, which means to stand firm, so be it. Maybe it'd be better for us to say it in our own language, you know, like that's right on, so be it, let it stand. But it turns out in the history of the Christian church and in our own tradition, amen is used, and you now know what it means, and what you need is to have... Um, such a sense of being in the presence of God when you come to worship that you don't care what other people around you are thinking when you say out loud, Amen. 
every once in a while when the preacher says the right thing you can say that too although you know this can turn into something that's kind of a thing that the you know the preacher and the audience get going between themselves too and we i don't need honestly don't personally need you to say amen for me to keep preaching and to feel strong about what i want to say but sometimes sometimes the preacher says something you say wow that's right that's great i needed that amen peter says amen after this doxology now we're going to be looking at the doxology itself which is very short he simply says to him be the dominion forever and ever well that's going to be a short message you might think what else could you say about that but you see this doxology is so pregnant with meaning because it really brings to a head the entire message of scripture because the rule of God, the reign of God, which is forever, is what the Bible tells us all about. That's a long story. And we've, uh, we've rebelled against that rule of God. And God rightly is angry with us for rebelling against him. But in history, he has promised to reestablish his proper dominion in this world. And so the history of how he has done that is given to us in the Old Testament. The climax found in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the living out of that dominion is explained to us in the rest of the New Testament. All of the Bible, in a sense, is summed up under this, that God has the dominion. But there's a lot of confusion about the reign of God, a lot of confusion about the kingdom of God or the dominion of God in our day and age. And that's why, before we actually look at the doxology, I want to give you some theological background. And in the next few moments, essentially what I'm going to do is to draw some distinctions for you and give you some biblical teaching that fills out those distinctions. So you'll understand, one, the richness, the richness of the biblical teaching about God's dominion, and also it'll help you from making, I think, some of the theological mistakes that are so rife in our own day because people don't draw distinctions of this nature. While I was away from you, um, I spoke at a conference um, that the Lord really blessed on the centennial of Dr. Van Til's birth. And uh, it was an apologetics conference and we had people from all over as far away as Alaska come to Maryland for this and so forth. It was really great. And one of our own, Mark, was there. That really surprised me to have him show up. I didn't know he was coming. And uh, I think we just had a great time together. Well, one of the things that happened, though, there is um, one of the lunch periods, myself and some of the other speakers and a couple of PCA pastors were sitting around, and we were joined by, um, well, maybe I shouldn't mention since we're taping this, uh, joined by someone who has written a book against Reconstructionist theology, okay, and is heading up an organization that calls itself the Pre-Trib Research Center or Institute. I'm sorry if I get the name wrong. And uh, he was there because he himself likes presuppositional apologetics and, and wanted to be part of this, but he also wanted to talk to some of us who disagree with him, of course, about eschatology and dispensational theology and so forth. <clears throat> and so while I asked him, I said, well, now, what does your pre-trib research center do? I, what is the main focus of your ministry? And, and work. I realize you don't agree with us, and so you'll probably want to write things to show how we're wrong, but what specific, are, is that the main reason you, he said, no, no. He said there are these progressive dispensationalists also that are out there that we're 
real concerned about, us mainline old guard dispensationalists are real concerned about. So I said, well, what specifically is it about the progressive school of dispensationalism that you don't like? He said, well, I don't like their already not yet scheme. Now, that's kind of lingo that theologians and seminarians would understand. It uh, is strange to you, but already established his kingdom, but it's not yet consummated. All right, so there's a sense in which it is now here, but it's not fully here. And he didn't like that distinction. And so we got into a discussion, and I said, well, um, so-and-so, you believe that Jesus is reigning now, don't you? And I think he answered in terms of what in your outline. If you don't have an outline for this morning's message, please make sure you pick one up. It'll make it much easier. He answered in terms of the providential reign of God. Of course, God reigns over all things. I said, yes, but there's also a messianic reign. And you believe that the Messiah reigns now, don't you? And he said, well, you know what I believe. Why, you know, why are you asking? I said, well, but Jesus was ascended to the right hand of God, and there he now sits enthroned, reigning over all creation. You believe that as much as we do, don't you? And he said, well, yes, I do, but you know that we don't believe it the way you do. And I said, oh, I just want to know what you believe. By the way, one of the friends at the table was Steve Schlissel. <laughs> and if you know Steve and his personality, I mean, he's always itching to get in. He said, that's fine. He says, so just tell us, what does that mean? Jesus is reigning from the right hand of God. He said, well, it doesn't mean what you think it means. <laughs> I said, okay, okay, it doesn't mean what we think it means. What do you think it means? Okay, and so we started talking about this, and I just want to make an illustration out of that. He would say things like, well, it doesn't mean that the Davidic kingdom has been established. I say, it hasn't, why not? He said, well, because the Davidic kingdom brings, you know, these earthly, socio-political, economic, educational reforms, and uh, that you Reconstructionists are looking for, and we don't think that's here. Jesus has to come back in person to reign in that way. And so we start talking about this, and he would draw distinctions and then take them away, and then he'd say, well, no, maybe I shouldn't have said that. At one point, Steve Schlissel said, well, then you don't think he's a king, he's only a crown prince right now, right? He's still waiting in the wings. So one day he'll be a king. No, no, he's a king, but he's not a king that way. I said, well, is he reigning? Yes, he's reigning, but not reigning in that... And so you go back and forth, back and forth. Now, I want to save you from this, what I think is really nonsense. It is possible to take the biblical teaching and put it together. It makes completely good sense, but you've got to pay attention to the differences. And so that's why you have an outline, and I'd like to um, go over that, explaining the way in which the Bible teaches that the Lord has dominion. The first and most important distinction you need to see is that there's a difference between God's reigning sovereignly over all things, God's sovereign dominion, which we can call his providential kingdom. It's his, he's the king, and by his providence, he governs everything that happens. And that is to be set apart from the Messiah's saving dominion. That is to say, God is ruler over all the earth. I'm going to explain that in a moment. But then we're going to look at how God, in his rule over all the earth, has also provided his son to be the king who brings salvation to this fallen earth as well. So first of all, let's take a look at God's sovereign dominion or his providential kingdom. The Bible teaches us that God is the king because... His will determines all events. 
Psalm 46.10, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. I love the psychology of that verse. I have to be careful. I have so many verses I want to talk about, but you, know, you have to pay attention to that. God says, do you realize that I am going to be the one who's exalted over all the earth one day? And so be very quiet in my presence. This is a holy and a sacred and an awesome thing. Be still and know that I am God. The heathen will not have the last word. I will. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, Daniel says, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? Daniel 4.35 God's will determines all events. And God has such majesty, such providential dominion over all things, that all the inhabitants of the earth are like nothing to God. Can you imagine that? If everyone who lived on the earth with all the firepower of all the armies of all the nations round about the globe were to get together, they would be nothing against God. You have to remember who God is. God spoke and the world came into existence. God is not threatened by anything. He is self-sufficient. He is eternal. He is almighty. And so God says that no one, no one can stop him from doing what he wishes to do. In fact, no one can even say to him, what do you think you are doing? No one can talk back. That's the kind of sovereignty he has. Psalm 103:19. Jehovah has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. How often in the Psalms, over and over and over again, do we read, the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. That's a stylized expression, actually. Jehovah, Yahweh, reigns. Psalm 93, Psalm 96, Psalm 97, Psalm 99, and on and on it goes. You see, that's a persistent theme of the psalmist. We sang it this morning. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. He's in control of everything. His will determines all things. Revelation 19.6 The Lord God omnipotent reigneth. All power is His. He's in control of everything. He's over all. <clears throat> and because He determines all events, the Bible says He governs the nations. <clears throat> The Lord reigns over every single event, and even the nations are like a drop in the bucket before him. Even the nations are nothing. He's the one who decides what the nations will be, how far they will go in their geographical extent, who will rule over them. Acts 17.26 says, God made of one blood all nations of men, for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and God has determined the times appointed beforehand and the bounds of their habitation. Psalm 22, for the kingdom is the Lord's. He is the governor among the nations. Psalm 75, for promotion comes neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south, but God is the judge. He puts down one. He sets up another. 
Those who rule over the nations are determined by God. Luke 1.52, he has put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. And so God determines every event. No one can stay his hand, and even the nations are nothing before him. The Bible tells us that God governs everything on the earth. And the way in which he governs everything is unchanging. He never has to change his mind. It's one of the things that is so weak and um, so difficult in my life is that I make these plans and then they get screwed up. And i got to remake plans. And I think I've got this great idea, but then I didn't take something into account or I'm, I, I, I fail in the execution of my plan. And so I've got to you know, kind of retool and, and replan and go at it again. God never, ever changes what he has decreed to do. <clears throat> the Bible tells us that the Lord does whatever he wishes. He does whatever he wishes, and he never has to change his mind. The counsel of Jehovah stands fast forever, the thoughts of his heart to all generations, Psalm 33:11. And in Hebrews 6:17, the author of Hebrews says that God was minded to show the immutability of his counsel. That word immutability is a big word. It simply means it doesn't change. Whatever God's plan is, whatever God's counsel is, it is immutable, and he demonstrates that. And so God has sovereign dominion over all events, over all nations, and his dominion, his plan, his purpose is an unchanging one. The Bible tells us of this dominion that it includes every detail, everywhere and forever. And this is the tough part. God's dominion, in this sense, even includes the wickedness of the world and the disasters that are all about us. Every detail is included everywhere in all the world. Psalm 136.6, Whatsoever the Lord pleased, that he did in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all deep places. From heaven above to the deepest part of the ocean, God does whatever he wishes there. And it covers every detail. Matthew 10, Not one sparrow shall fall to the ground, apart from your father, but the very hairs of your head are numbered. The least significant detail of life, unless, like some of us, we're losing too many of those hairs, the least significant detail, the very hairs of your head are numbered. And God has dominion over all those details from heaven above to the depth of the sea. He controls everything. And the counsel of Jehovah stands fast forever. He never has to change his mind about how many hairs you're going to lose tomorrow morning. And what he determines governs all things, even what we think is a matter of, quote, chance. You know, you go to Las Vegas and you say, hey, I think I'll, you know, play a couple of card games just for fun. We'll, we'll see how, you know, fortune deals with me. The Bible says God's in charge even of the casting of the dice. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. There's not a hand of cards you have ever played or ever will play that God hasn't already from all eternity determined what the outcome will be. 
And the Bible says that all of God's providential rule covers even the wickedness of men. The arch crime of all history was the crucifixion of the Lord of glory. And Acts 2.23 says, Him being delivered up by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Men wickedly did what they did in killing Jesus. But God had planned it all along. They were carrying out his determinate counsel. Does that mean that God plans wickedness and disaster as well? Absolutely. He is sovereign over everything. Lamentations 3.38, Out of the mouth of the Most High comes there not evil and good. Isaiah 31.2, He is also wise and will bring evil and will not call back his words, but will arise against the house of evildoers and against the help of them who work iniquity. Isaiah 47.11, Therefore shall evil come upon thee from the Lord. Thou shalt not know how to charm it away, and mischief shall fall upon thee. Thou shalt not be able to put it away, and desolation shall come upon thee suddenly, which thou knowest not. Amos 3.6, Shall the trumpet be blown in a city, and the people not be afraid? Shall evil befall a city, and Jehovah hath not done it? Proverbs 16.4 tells us that even those who are unbelievers and wicked in their rebellion against God are only doing and playing out what he has planned and purposed. Jehovah has made everything for his own purpose. Yes, even the wicked for the day of evil. So the Bible tells us that God has a sovereign dominion over everything. He's exalted above all. He's more powerful than all. He plans everything, determines every event. He controls the nations, never changes his mind. Every detail from top to bottom and all the creation, even the hairs of your head. And why does he do this? What is his goal in governing all the events upon earth? The Bible says for the good of his people and the glory of his name. I want you to notice that it's for the good of his people and the glory of his name. It's not just that God wants glory, but the glory that God receives is going to bring goodness to his people. Romans 8:28. All things work together for good to them that love God, to those called according to his purpose. Everything that God has planned, the way in which this universe um, goes, the way in which history unfolds will all be for the good of God's people. But it will be for his glory as well. Romans 11:36. Unto him are all things. Unto him is everything. And so everything that takes place is serving his purpose and will finally be to his glory and to our good. And notice finally that whatever God has planned and the way in which he rules over every event in this world cannot be defeated. Isaiah 46, verses 9 to 11. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. I have spoken, I will also bring it to pass, I have purposed. I will also do it. 
Isaiah 14, verse 24, Jehovah of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely as I have thought, so shall it come to pass. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. For Jehovah of hosts has purposed, and who shall annul it? And his hand is stretched out, who shall turn it back? That's dominion. See, there's not a thumb's width of all of creation that God isn't controlling right now has always controlled and always will nothing escapes him and that means everything that happens to us as heartbreaking as it may be as painful as it may be as dreadful and as unjust as it may be nothing that happens to us has escaped his attention and falls outside of his plan and purpose to him be the dominion forever. But you see, Peter, in speaking of the dominion that God has, is talking not simply the way in which he rules over all by his almighty power, not just his sovereign dominion, but we have to take into account also what the Bible teaches us about the messianic dominion, the saving dominion of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The Apostle John opened the book of Revelation by introducing the resurrected Savior. And he called him not only the head of the church who is sovereignly present in the church, but in Revelation 1.5, John called Jesus the ruler of the kings of the earth. The ruler of the kings of the earth. At the end of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew tells us that Jesus promised to be with his church until the end of the age, claiming all authority in heaven and on earth. John and Matthew say Jesus is ruler over the kings of the earth. He has all authority on earth right now. That's kind of hard to take, isn't it? Those are very bold claims and of course they counteract much of modern evangelical theology that doesn't see the uh, the reign of Christ as being a present uh, dominion that is going to uh, uh, affect things outside the institutional church. It's important for us to see that he is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, but it's a bewildering claim because, after all, you have watched the news lately, haven't you? It doesn't look like Jesus is ruling. And we hear the old, you know, saw from dispensationalists and other pessimistic people who will tell us, well, if Satan is bound, he sure is on a long chain, isn't he? Look at all that he's doing in this world. Well, you know, we can joke and snicker all we want, but you know that this is an insult to the present reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we saw the evening news through the eyes of our Savior, we wouldn't draw these conclusions. Because nothing you have heard on the evening news, nothing about the uh, geopolitical turmoil around the world, nothing about the injustice, the murder, the thievery, and all the rest that makes life so uncomfortable and unclean, nothing that you see in the news stands against the sovereign rule of our Savior. And you know what that means? That means he must be the one who's controlling those events. Wow. If Jesus is ruling now and what you see on the evening news doesn't look like it's very glorifying to God, it must be that God has turned us over to our sin because he is reigning. Psalm 2 tells us, you sang this before I came up to preach. Did you pay attention to this? 
Psalm 2 tells us that those judges and kings of the earth who will not submit to him will come under his what? His wrath. And he will destroy them in a second. Jesus needs simply speak the word. And I'll tell you, anybody who opposes him is gone. It's only by his grace, his patience, and his mercy that any evil is allowed to exist in this world today. The Bible tells us not only of the providential reign of God, it also tells us of the messianic reign of God, the saving reign of God. By the way, in your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Daniel. I want to show you the difference between these two reigns right here in one book of the Bible, very clearly expounded. If, first of all, if you look at Daniel 4.17, you'll see the sovereign providential reign of God. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers and the demand by the word of the holy ones to the intent that the living may know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will and setteth up over it the lowest of men. There is the sovereign dominion of God. But if you turn just three chapters forward to Daniel 7 at the 13th verse, we'll see that within the sovereign dominion and providential reign of God, one has been declared to rule over the nations in a saving way. I saw in the night visions, behold, there came with the clouds of heaven one like unto a son of man, and he came even to the ancient of days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. God rules over all, and no one can say to him, what do you think you're doing? And in that providential rule, he has given a Savior, a Messiah, who has come to govern the nations, and he will have eternal dominion. His kingdom shall not be destroyed. Well, where is that? reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. To understand the Bible, you have to see that the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ is found in anticipation, in establishment, and in consummation. There are three historical phases of the reign of Christ. And again, if you're following in the outline, you see that the first point that I want to make here is that with respect to the reign of Jesus Christ the Messiah, it was anticipated in the Old Testament. In the past, the Jews were a model of the kingdom of God. They were a microcosm, a little picture of the bigger reality that was coming. There was the anticipation of God's kingdom. When Jesus came into the world, what did he come declaring? What did the forerunner of Jesus say? Repent for what? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king has come, don't you understand? And Jesus said, if I by the finger of God cast out demons, then is the kingdom of God in your midst. Jesus, after he rose from the dead, said, all power and authority in heaven on earth is mine. When he ascended to the right hand of God, the Bible tells us repeatedly in the New Testament, he ascended to the throne to reign. And so it was anticipated in the Old Testament, established at the first coming of Jesus, and that kingdom is now growing in the earth and will one day be consummated. 
Because what we see now is not all that God intends to do. And the day is coming when we will all live in a new heavens and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. When Jesus comes again and consummates his kingdom. But those who have no right to that kingdom will not enjoy that new heavens and new earth wherein righteousness dwells. They will rather enjoy or not so much enjoy one another forever in hell separated from the blessings of God, separated from even the restraints of civilization, separated from what gives any measure of psychological peace and order in this day into a terror of mind and body and spirit that will never end. So does Jesus reign? Of course he does. He reigned in anticipation over the Jews. He has come and established his kingdom in the New Testament, and one day his reign will be complete as he consummates the kingdom. Let's take a moment to look at the established present state of Christ's kingdom. Many people have trouble believing that Jesus is reigning, as I told you, because they watch the news and they don't interpret it in a biblical way. What do we know about the present reign of Jesus Christ? First of all, the Bible does not say that his reign is in the church, but the world belongs to the devil. You're going to hear that said over and over and over again, so you better listen now and get it right. Jesus does not rule in the church, and the devil rules outside the church. That is not biblical. Jesus rules over all the world. The kingdom of God, according to Matthew 16, verses 18 and 19, the kingdom of God is a present reality that shows that Jesus rules even over the devil. He cast out demons, after all. In Matthew 13, in the parables, Jesus explains that the kingdom is like this field that has good and bad growing in the same field. Even the doers of iniquity are part of the kingdom of God. Boy, what do you think of that? Some people say, oh, that shows that we have hypocrites in the church. <laughs> well, but Jesus says the kingdom is the world. The doers of iniquity in this world are ruled over by Jesus Christ, the Messiah, in this age. Now, how can that be? How can unbelievers who are rejecting the Savior, who are living wickedly on the earth, nevertheless be under his dominion? And that's why I have a series of distinctions in your outline that I want you to follow with me very briefly here. You need to realize, of course, there's a difference between what is the objective state of affairs, what things are externally, the way they really are, and then subjectively and internally, the way people recognize them. You know, I might have tuberculosis. That's a matter of fact. I have tuberculosis, but I don't want to recognize it, right? Or would you say, because I don't recognize it, I don't have it? That would be absurd. The Bible teaches that Jesus rules over men even when they won't acknowledge it. You know, they won't, they won't subjectively acknowledge the reign of Jesus, but nevertheless it has been given to him. And the Bible says it's been given to him by right. There's a difference between reigning by right and an actual fact. Okay? In my house, I rule by right. I have the dominion. I'm the one who determines what we're going to do. Don't always do it, you know, perfectly. But by right, I make the decisions. 
does that mean that everybody in my house does exactly what I want them to do? Well, since you know my boys, you probably assume, well, of course, Dr. Bunsen. And so I'm sorry to tell you, every once in a while, the one who rules the house doesn't get his way. It happens that way, maybe in your house too occasionally. Does that mean you don't have the dominion, you don't have the right, you don't have the authority over your house? No, it doesn't mean that. It means that you rule by rares that rule seen by the submission of those who are under you. And the Bible says in Luke 22:29 that Jesus has been appointed a kingdom. In 1 Corinthians 15:27 that he is reigning over all. And that that reign is testified to by his resurrection, Matthew 28. And Romans 1, verse 4. Philippians 2, verses 9 to 11. Over and over and over again, the Bible says, the resurrection proves that God has established him as the king. By right, all men must bow the knee and confess with their mouths that he is the Lord. That doesn't mean everybody does what Jesus tells them to do. Moreover, we need to see that there's a distinction between ruling in blessing and ruling in cursing. The Bible teaches that the kingdom of God brings blessing, redemptive blessing. In John, the third chapter, you know how Nicodemus came to Jesus and he said, you must be born again to see the kingdom of heaven. And so to be in the presence of the kingdom can mean blessing. It means being born again, being saved. Colossians 1.13, we've been translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son for the sake of our salvation. However, the Bible also teaches that the kingdom of God brings curse so that rebels against the king come under his wrath and they come under his judgmental curse now as well as in the future. Let me give you a couple of examples. Mark 9.1. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, There are some here of them that stand by, who shall in no wise taste of death, till they see the kingdom of God come with power. By the way, Jesus was saying this not by way of, this is going to be a lot of fun for you, but rather, the wrath of God is going to be seen in this generation for what you're now doing. That's why Jesus could say when the women were weeping and wailing for him as he carried his cross up to Golgotha, he says, don't cry for me. Cry for yourselves. Because if this is what happens when the tree is green, you watch and see what happens when it's dry. And God now brings wrath upon Israel. And those who judged the Savior were judged by God from heaven. That didn't take place in the, or is not going to take place in the future. That took place in the past, within the generation of Jesus' hearers. And so the wrath of the king is seen in history. Revelation 19 tells us that Jesus treads out the winepress of the wrath of God the Almighty. As Psalm 2 says, those kings and judges that will not submit to him will come under his wrath. Kiss the sun, lest you perish in the way. But you know, nothing that we see in history of the judgments of God even the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Nothing that we see in history will match the full fury of God's righteous indignation on the final day. And the Bible tells us that the full fury of God is yet to come. In Matthew 13, over and over again, we're told that Jesus will separate those who belong to him from those who do not. And what will happen to those who do not belong to him? 
they will suffer eternal judgment, the fiery flame forever. And so how is it that unbelievers who repudiate the Messiah's dominion are nevertheless under his dominion today? Well, with this very brief and all too hurried discussion of what the Bible teaches about the dominion of the Messiah, I think you can answer that question. Unbelievers who repudiate his dominion are nevertheless by right ruled by him, and they are under his rule in the form of wrath and curse, which they experience now and will one day experience in its full fury. Jesus still rules. It was once said that nations don't break the law of God. The law of God breaks nations. And so when you look at what's happening in our world today and you watch the evening news and you say, it doesn't look like Jesus is ruling, you better be shuddering because, in fact, what God is doing in his rule is turning us over to our sin and the judgment that it brings. We are in a self-destruct mode if we will not bow the knee and with our tongues, praise the name of Jesus as the Lord. And finally, the Bible says that this rule that Jesus now has has a growth dimension to it. He rules by right, but more and more through history, he will rule in actual fact in the lives of people. He rules today in curse and wrath, and more and more we'll see that rule come to express in, in redemptive blessing. We know that because Jesus said that it's like a mustard seed, right? Starts out very small, grows to be very big. It's like a little bit of leaven you put in the dough, and it eventually infiltrates everything. The Messiah, who is objectively reigning by right and judging rebels in the process, will more and more become recognized to reign in actual fact and bring his redemptive blessing to people. 1 Corinthians 15:25, his feet. The last enemy to be defeated will be death. And so before Jesus returns, he's going to destroy all of his enemies. In Matthew 12:29, he says, If I have bound the strong man, now I will spoil his house. Jesus is destroying the kingdom of Satan. He declares, The gates of hell shall not prevail against the onward march of his church, which he builds. Sinners are being saved. They're being nurtured in the commandments of Jesus. In Colossians 1, we see that they're giving Jesus preeminence in all things. And so the nations, according to the Great Commission, are to be discipled, not just witnessed to, but made the disciples of Jesus and taught to obey all that he has commanded. The government shall be upon his shoulder, Isaiah said. His name shall be called Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from henceforth and forever. The zeal of Jehovah of hosts will perform it. The Bible says that it may start small, but you better be very sure Jehovah is zealous to bring it about, that the kingdom of his son will grow and grow and increase greater and greater expression of his might 
And so Isaiah says, one day the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. So that's what we have to understand when we look at the evening news and things don't look so good. We say, well, we're in the process. But Jesus now rules by right. He's saving. He's judging. And praise God, the day is coming when he will have stomped down the nations that rebel. And he will lift up the lowly who humbly have faith in him. And Jehovah of hosts and his zeal will never let that fail. All right, now that's all window dressing for the sermon. Now you're ready to hear the word of God preached from 1 Peter 5.11. Of course, if you understand what I've told you, I don't have to say a whole lot more, do I? Because see, that's what Peter's talking about. When he's just overwhelmed and he says, to him be the dominion forever. He providentially rules over all and he sent his son Jesus Christ into this world to establish a saving kingdom that will not be defeated. Notice the fourfold reason for Peter's doxology here. The first place, it's a joyful response in the midst of persecution to what he has just been said. You must listen to this because you know persecution, you know sadness, you know tribulation in this world. Peter has just said in verse 10, And the God of all grace, who called you unto his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a short time, shall himself perfect you, establish you, and strengthen you. And having said that, having spoken of the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ in this way, Peter can't help but give this doxology of praise to him be the glory and the dominion forever. It's his joyful response that in the midst of persecution, God reigns and he will establish you and perfect you. Secondly, I believe it's a significant theological reminder that Peter offers to give fortitude in the midst of the struggle. Not only do we glorify God for the promise that will be established through persecution, but it also gives us fortitude to know that as you suffer, it's part of God's plan, his providential plan. It doesn't fall outside of what he's intending to do, and it's advancing the messianic kingdom of Jesus Christ when you suffer. Thirdly, it's an appropriate summation of the underlying. It's, of course, the crowning declaration of the New Testament proclamation as well. Everything the New Testament is about has to do with this dominion that's been established and will never end. And finally, I think Peter puts it here as a prayer of submission. And when you say these words, as we do in the Lord's Prayer, it's a matter of our giving glory to God and saying, we come under your rule. We own it as our own, and we love it, and we thank you for it. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Who's the him? Is Peter talking about God, who establishes the reign of Jesus, or is he talking about Jesus the king here? Well, actually, I don't think we have to choose between the two. Grammatically, it could be either. He could be talking about God, who is mentioned at the beginning of verse 10, and the God of all grace who called you into his eternal glory. (coughs) But Peter mentions after God doing this, that he has done this in Christ. And so it may be this Christ that has the dominion that he's talking about. Turn back in 1 Peter to chapter 4, verse 11 
where a similar doxology is found at the end of the verse, and it's clearly there, Jesus. That in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, whose is the glory and dominion forever and ever. Now we learn something important here just in passing in that Peter doesn't really care to distinguish between the dominion of God and the dominion of Jesus because they're all one in his sight. And so the doxology is to the triune God, I believe. And what he attributes to God and to Jesus, his son, is the Greek word kratos, which means power or might, uh, dominion, having control over things. And it's amazing. Uniquely, this word in the New Testament is applied to God. That is to say, only God. In all the New Testament, only God has the word kratos attributed to him. Only God has the power, the might, and the dominion in this sense. And what Peter tells us about this unique dominion is that it will always be this way. God reigns now, but God will reign throughout all eternity. Unlike every earthly potentate, unlike every political kingdom, like every regime that's ruled in the United States or any geopolitical power that's ruled in history, unlike every earthly potentate and political kingdom, God's reign is never going to come to an end. This world and everyone in it will always, always and in every way be under his sway and always and in every way be responsible to do his will. God has the first word as the creator and God will have the last word as the ruler. And so everything that we do, everything we think about, everything we feel, everything that we plan, everything that we evaluate, everything that we say, everything must be subject to the one who rules over us in all things and rules forever and ever. And everything that happens to us must be seen in the light of God's eternal reign because God's accomplishing his purposes. What's happening to us is not for nothing. It's not random. We haven't been forgotten. <clears throat> Everything that happens, including your strengthening and perfection, as verse 10 says, everything that you go through, the tribulations that for a short time, everything is part of the reign of God. And so you see how important this message is. It's not only the capstone of the New Testament. It's got to be at the very heart of the Christian's life. To him be the dominion forever. And all of God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we do bow before you. We are in awe before you. That you can keep track of the very hairs of our head. And that not the slightest detail, not the slightest event of anything from heaven above to the bottom of the very ocean takes place without your plan and purpose. And we are not only in awe of your great sovereignty, that your hand directs every detail, even the wicked, even the disasters of this world, 
we stand secondly in awe that you have sent one into this world, the God-man himself, to have rule over all creation for your glory. We stand in awe that the wicked will not get away with their wickedness, and nothing that happens in this world will somehow undo the reign of Jesus himself. We stand in awe of one who will have all knees bow before him and all tongues confess that he is the Lord. Lord Jesus, we do believe with all our hearts that you are working that out in history. We do believe that the zeal of Jehovah of hosts will make your kingdom increase and that we will see greater and greater blessing despite the persecution your church has been through, despite the tribulation we individually undergo. We believe it's all for your glory and for your good. We do believe that you will have the last word on earth, that yours is the kingdom now and forever. We praise you, and we want to thank you that because you are the ruler over all, Jesus, we want to thank you that you have included us in the blessedness of your reign because we don't deserve it. We don't live as obedient subjects in your kingdom. We have to confess that we've lived to ourselves and we've thought we're in control of our lives. We've thought that we could plan things out. And we could decide what is right and wrong. We've decided when we could serve you and when we could do our own pleasures. We've thought that you could be important sometimes, but then we could live secular lives and lives that are selfish and, and lives that somehow we thought were hidden from your, your reign and sovereignty. And we've thought that we don't need to give you glory in everything, that you'd be satisfied if we momentarily thank you for our food or come to church. And we understand now, Lord Jesus, that your reign is worthy of much more than that inconsistent and weak following that we give. We do ask that you would lift us up today by the power of your spirit, that you would forgive us by your grace and help us to serve you in all things, that whether we eat or drink or whatsoever we do, we'll do it to your glory, that we'll work as unto you that all of our thoughts would be pure and holy, for they have to be worthy of you. That we would not let others pull us aside or make us indifferent, but we would give you our hearts, give you all of our hearts to love you with everything that is in us and to love your people. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would build up your kingdom. We ask that you would strengthen the church, establish it in this earth, we ask that you would strengthen this congregation. Help us to grow. Help us to grow numerically. Help us to grow spiritually. Help us to grow in love for one another. And above all, help us to grow in our ability to worship you in spirit and in truth and bring to you that praise which is worthy of your name, the one who reigns forever and ever without end. In Jesus' name, amen.